Okay, more handouts, because that's how we roll. Um, I hope you are loving Paradise Lost. Um, you at least have to pretend to. Um, from pretense will come conviction, and that's a good thing. Um, so this, what I'm giving you is um, a handout of some passages from two of the great romantic poets, William Blake and Percy Bysshe Shelley. Um, these are both passages not from um, poetic, um, officially poetic works, um, what, but from officially prose works, but they are still um, poetic um, from a couple of passages. Um, first, though, the first thing to look at, it's um, the top of the page you will see is um, a couple of pages from Blake's um, short book, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Um, it's a totally great book. You can find it online. Um, it's, it will change your life, um, and in a good way, um, which is to say in an evil way where evil is good, um, because paradise lost. Um, if you look at the Proverbs of Hell on the right-hand page, um, of the marriage of heaven and hell, um, you'll see something that allows us a segue, one of a couple of segues we're going to do today. Um, from King Lear to Paradise Lost. The most obvious segue um, from King Lear to Paradise Lost is to say that Satan, Milton Satan, is in some ways based on Shakespeare's Edmund. Um, but Satan, that is a character of um, sublime daring, of sublime energy, um, of sublime rebelliousness, a character who has been expelled from happiness, the first thing Gloucester says about Edmund, or almost the first is, he hath been out nine years, and away he shall again. Why? Because he is a bastard, um, and therefore doesn't belong to the community of the saved, or the community of the, um, of the um, um, respected and privileged. Um, but Edmund does something about it. Most, not all, but most of what he does is evil in a, in a sense that we would agree that it's evil. Um, another segue, which is a segue more to the Miltonic statement, state, ah, the Miltonic statement than to the um, Shakespearean Edmund, um, is, can be seen in the Proverbs of Hell. So as you'll see on the right-hand top page, reduced, um, Three paragraphs down, there is a section that be called Proverbs of Hell. I've given you some of those proverbs. Um, if you read all of the Marriage of Heaven and Hell, there are more of them. They're great. Um, one of them is um, the one that... Um, just wondering how many of these it's worth reading. Um... Eternity, for example, at what is line 10 there, eternity is in love with the productions of time. Um, the idea is that um, it's the productions of time that somehow are greater than eternity, that the life of mortality, that the experience of mortality, our experience, is somehow greater than the experience of immortality or of Eternity and eternity itself falls in love with the productions of time. Um, another proverb, a little bit lower, is no bird soars too high if he soars with his own wings. Um, that's an echo of Paradise Lost. 
um, Satan will later say to one of the loyal angels that I was sitting where thou durst not soar. But Milton himself, at the beginning of Paradise Lost, um, says that his song, that with, with no middle flight, intends to soar above the height of Pegasean wing. So Milton's poem is one that soars, and he believes in soaring, and um, Blake is getting that idea from Milton. But then what I really wanted to point you to was a couple of proverbs below that. The proverbs of hell are all proverbs that Blake thinks are true. They're the, good, they're the true proverbs and not the prudential proverbs. Um, the proverbs that say, um, now you can't be too careful and you should um, live your life without trying to do too much because it's only going to get you into trouble. Um, the last of the proverbs of hell is enough or too much. Too much is what you should be aiming for. Below that, this is the one I wanted to point you to, is the um, proverb, the most sublime act is to set another before you. And there are two overlapping meanings of that proverb. The more obvious one is, but the, the less deep one, partly because it's more obvious, is to put someone's interests above your own, to set them before you that is above you, to um, say that what matters to them is more important than what matters to you. Um, but the true meaning of this, or the deeper meaning, is to be face-to-face -face with another human being, to put another human being in front of you and to look at them as a human being, to have a human relation with another human being. The Miltonic phrase that I mentioned to you already and that you will see in book three is the amazing phrase, the human face divine. That is the most divine thing is the face of another human being. Not the face of God. It's not that the human face reminds us of the face of God, which is what one interpretation of Genesis, that God made man in his own image, to quote the King James Version of the Bible. But for Blake, it's rather that God, to the extent that he has a human face, to the extent that he's human, he can count as much as another human being can. The real divinity is the, is the human face. And that is what makes the human face divine. So the most sublime act is to set another before you. Now, um, that idea is the Blakean version, you could say, of what we were approaching on Monday under the heading or under the name of friendship. That is, the friendship that Lear has for the fool is how we were ultimately talking about it. But the friendship that Gloucester fails to have for Edgar when he doesn't believe him, and then recovers for Edgar. In, in last night's storm, I such a fellow saw that made me think a man a worm my son came then into, his, into my mind, he says. That is, he saw mad Tom, and he thought of his son. But he didn't pursue that thought, because then he says, and yet my mind was then scarce friends with him. So he doesn't set his son, Edgar, before him 
at that moment. But now that he's blind, as Milton will be, it's almost as though Shakespeare is writing, beginning the history of a whole arc of English literature by saying, okay, there's going to be a great blind poet after me, and I'm going to give him this line so that he can do something with it. Not really, but um, you should think of it that way sometimes. Um, now that he's blind, he actually can set his son before him. He can do that sublime act. So I want to pursue the word sublime for a moment and say that what the standard aesthetic um, opposition is in the history of literature, um, especially in the history of literature, to some extent in the history of art in general, to some extent in the history of music, but especially in the history of literature, are that there are two very strong, what we regard as desirable aesthetic responses that we can have to a poem, a novel, a literary work. And I'm talking about aesthetic responses, not about thematic responses, not about interpretive responses, but aesthetic responses. And those two are known as, are called the sublime, we can find a literary work sublime, or we can find a literary work beautiful. We can find a painting or a landscape or a natural um, place sublime or beautiful as well. Often people think of the sublime, if they don't think hard about it, as a version of the beautiful. That is, you may go to the Grand Canyon and you may say, wow, is that ever beautiful? Um, but it isn't. The Grand Canyon, Mont Blanc, which is the go-to mountain for the sublime in Europe, um, when you talk about natural landscapes, beautiful is what a summer day is. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate, as Shakespeare begins a sonnet. Beautiful is something that brings in a standard and reasonable and intuitive definition of beauty. Beauty brings serenity. Beauty brings self-possession. Beauty um, allows you to feel at home in your surroundings, if it's a beautiful landscape, at home in what you're looking at in a poem, in a work of art, in a painting, in Monet's Water Lilies, for example, you can feel at home, at rest, um, self-possessed um, in the presence of the beautiful work of art. The sublime is the opposite of that. The sublime is where you feel homeless, where things feel overwhelmingly powerful. Beauty is not powerful in its very nature. We sometimes talk about terrible beauty. Anyone know where that phrase is from? A terrible beauty is born? Anyone? You're sort of raising your hand? Yeah, it's Yeats. Um, it's Easter 1916. Yeats comes up with the phrase terrible beauty, but he wants that to be an oxymoron. Terrible sublimity, that is terrifying, overwhelming, that's not an oxymoron. So the sublime is what feels powerful and overwhelming and makes you feel the opposite of at home where you are. It's something very, very close to danger. Emerson, describing the sublime in his great essay, Nature, says, I feel glad to the brink of fear. 
beauty does not bring you to the brink of fear. The sublime does. So the question that we were asking, why does tragedy give pleasure? The question that Aristotle raises, the question that Addison and Johnson are arguing that we were looking at on Monday. Why does Freud think that somehow the most sublime reading, it's certainly not the most beautiful reading of King Lear, the most beautiful reading of King Lear is, oh, father and daughter are reconciled at the end, and then they can leave this life peacefully. That reading is wrong. Anyone in any other class who tells you, you know, we don't diss our fellow um, faculty, but anyone who tells you that that's what happens at King Lear, that it, ha that, that it ends with resolution and reconciliation, they are wrong. Um, what happens at the end of King Lear is something terrible, something that Dr. Johnson found unendurable. And somehow we find the fact that he found it unendurable powerful and right. It should be something almost very close to unendurable. So what kind of pleasure is that? It's not the pleasure of beauty. It's not the pleasure of everything achieving harmony. It's a strange and other kind of pleasure, sometimes distinguished from pleasure, but through the, through the use of the word delight, where you should let delight have its full 18th century power. Not pleasure, but delight, where delight is something energetic and electrifying, but not serene and harmonious. So the experience of the sublime is delight, which is only a step away from terror. Um, terrible beauty is actually beauty which is morphing into the sublime. Um, that's what Yeats means by that phrase. So the most sublime act is to set another before you, says Blake, and to set another before you means not to be in a place where you are at peace with them or at rest with them or where everything is okay, but a place where you see the gulf, the abyss of human relation, that all minds are abysses that if you take another human being as just someone rather than everything, you are not confronting them in the mode of the sublime. We can't do it often, but when we do it, that's when the human face becomes divine. One place that we do it is when we fall in love. Freud famously, and I think wrongly said, that the surest sign of love is overestimation. That is, if you're in love with someone, you all have had this experience. Your roommate falls in love with someone and you have no idea why. And your roommate is saying, because they're so amazing. And you're like, no, they're not. Um, everyone has had that experience. But what I would say is the truth is they are so amazing because everyone is. And that's at least what Blake thinks and thinks. And it's only when we're in love that we actually get a sense of something like the full depth and reality of another human being. It doesn't mean we don't get infatuated and that infatuation is, is the same thing, but it is a, it's in the same direction of taking another human being seriously. For Blake, that's the sublime. In Blake's reading of Milton, that's the sublime. So one thing that I want us to look at then is the first page that I Xeroxed for you of the marriage of heaven and hell. The reason 
um, the pages are divided into plates is that Blake printed his own books and illustrated them. And the plates are the plates that he printed with. And there is, if you study Blake, which you should, um, the integrity of the plates is something that you will eventually be interested in, the plates themselves as works of art. Blake was a great um, visual artist, um, not great the way Michelangelo or Rembrandt or Raphael uh, were great, um, but nevertheless a great visual artist. As a poet, Blake was a great poet the way Dante and Shakespeare and Milton were great. So he's a greater poet than a visual artist, but he's still up there as a visual artist. So if you look at the top of the left page, here's what Blake in this book is giving us a new doctrine. All Bibles or sacred codes have been the causes of the following errors. So here he's correcting the errors that every religion has promulgated in the history of humanity. All Bibles or sacred codes have been the causes of the following errors. <coughs> One, that man has two real existing principles, viz, which is sort, short for weedy liket, which means um, so that you are allowed to see. So we sometimes translate it as to wit or namely. That man has two real existing principles, namely a body and a soul. So that's one error, that we have two existing principles, namely a body and a soul. And the second error is that energy, called evil, is alone from the body. And that reason, called good, is alone from the soul. So that energy from the body here, he's talking um, probably most obviously about erotic energy and erotic desire. That comes from the fact that we're embodied and that our souls are imprisoned in our bodies. Blake doesn't think that. He says that's what religion teaches, and it's wrong that energy is not evil, that energy is, if you look at number three below in the three doctrines that are the truth, um, energy is eternal delight. So there's that word delight again. Not eternal pleasure, but eternal delight, which, as I say, is more electrifying, um, more energetic, because it's energy, um, more um, unserene um, than pleasure would be. So the error is energy called evil is alone from the body and reason called good is alone from the soul. And this error, number three, that God will torment man in eternity for following his energies. So all those things are wrong, says Blake. And here's what's right. But the following contraries to these are true. So here's the truth. I'm simplifying Blake a little bit because um, he's not quite agreeing with the contraries, but he thinks it's much better to agree with the contraries than with what they're contrary of. He wants them integrated a little bit more than this would imply. Um, so just so you know, this is slightly simplifying, but only slightly. So the following contraries are true. One, man has no body distinct from his soul, 
for that called body is a portion of soul discerned by the five senses, the chief inlets of soul in this age. Two, energy is the only life and is from the body, and reason is the bound or outward circumference of energy. So reason comes from energy. It's energy when the circle of energy, when the stone of energy um, propagates, when the circles of that thrown stone into a pond of energy propagates to their outward bound, you finally get reason itself, which belongs to energy too. And finally, energy is eternal delight. Now, in plate five, he gives his views. It's a little bit too complicated to go over them now, but the way to read plate five, which I urge you to read, is that what... Nah, it's not that complicated. Plate five. Those who restrain desire do so because theirs is weak enough to be restrained. So anyone who um, walks around seeming good and not... Um, expressing or feeling or giving in to their various desires, it's because their desires are weak. And the restrainer or reason usurps its place and governs the unwilling. So reason, prudence, is the restrainer. And being restrained, it by degrees becomes passive till it is only the shadow of desire. So restraining desire turns you into a shadow. The history of this is written in Paradise Lost. And the governor or reason is called Messiah. So Paradise Lost in Blake's reading is the history of the way reason destroys the soul. And the governor, the evil tyrant in Paradise Lost, Blake is saying, is the character in Paradise Lost known as Messiah. That is the son of God. He it is in this reading in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, in this infernal reading of Paradise Lost, which Blake embraces, it is Messiah who governs and restrains reason. I mean, excuse me, who governs and restrains desire. And the original archangel, or possessor of the command of the heavenly host, is called the devil or Satan, and his children are called sin and death. So, the real archangel, the true hero of Paradise Lost, in Paradise Lost is named Satan, and his children are named Sin and Death, as you will see in Book 2 of Paradise Lost. But in the book of Job, Milton's Messiah is called Satan. So that in the book of Job, where Satan torments Job, you may remember, um, God says, um, where have you been to Satan? And Satan says, I've been all over the world. Um, and everyone worships me, and God says, not Job. And Satan says, let me torture him, and then he won't worship you anymore. Um, what, what Blake is saying is that Satan, whose name means, anyone know what it means? In Aramaic? Does it mean like turn away or something? No, it literally means the, well, in a way it does. It means the adversary, the, the enemy. So Satan is often called that old enemy, Satan. Um, but his name means enemy or adversary. That's where the name comes from. In Paradise Law, Satan at one point will refer to that meaning of his name. Remember, it's not he doesn't take that name. 
Um, what happens is all the fallen angels are given new names in hell, but they don't name themselves. It's God and the heavenly powers who are stripping away their angelic names. In the Book of Life, their names are raised and blotted out. That's when you get the epic catalog of fallen angels, which is something epics do. All epics, or, or many epics, most famously the Iliad with the catalog of ships, will have a, you know it, will have a long, long list that most people skim, but that you should read carefully at least once, because Homer hides some amazing things in that long list. Milton is doing something similar when he names the fallen angels, but he says they hadn't yet among the sons of Eve got themselves new names, but here's what they would be called in the future, because their heavenly names were extirpated. They were quite blotted out. They were made as, um, as we Stalinists say, non-persons in heaven, non-angels in heaven. No names. Their names are taken away from them in heaven. Um, so Satan is named Satan by the authority to quote Philip Pullman's term for the God in Paradise Lost, by the authority that has taken away his angelic name. That name is possibly Lucifer, which anyone know what Lucifer means, literally, in Latin? The bearer of light. Lucifer is also the name of the evening star. Lucifer means the light bearer. Fur as in transfer, which is to carry something or to bear something across, and luce as in um, luce, well, luciferous, um, lucid, light, um, from the Latin word lux, L-U-X. So Lucifer is the carrier of light who is renamed the adversary, the enemy. So what happens in the book of Job, Satan, um, to Milton, late say is that the figure that Milton makes Messiah in Paradise Lost is actually the true Satan, the evil Satan, the Satan of the book of Job. So whereas the Satan of Paradise Lost is not that Satan, the Satan of Paradise Lost is an archangel who fights for freedom. And then he says, so given the names, just as long as you keep track of what the true names are, he goes on, this history has been adopted by both parties. That is, both those in hell and those in heaven agree as to what happened. They just disagree as to who's good and who's evil. So, um, yeah, it indeed appeared to reason as if desire was cast out. So reason, God in Paradise Lost, his son in Paradise Lost, the loyal and somewhat chicken angels in Paradise Lost, they thought they got rid of desire. So heaven was now a place without desire, and that meant there was peace. Everyone was on Soma. Everyone was, um, if, you, if you've read The Giver, everyone was taking their pills, and it was all good. Um, the Giver is based on Paradise Lost in some ways as well. Um, if, how many people have not read it? That might be easier. Okay, it's, it's good. 
Um, Jonas and the Giver is a satanic figure. Um, not quite as great as Satan, but a satanic figure. So, um, desire is cast out in heaven. So it appears. Um, it indeed appeared to reason equals bad, as if desire was cast out, but the devil's account is that the Messiah fell, the true Messiah, namely Satan. He is the Messiah, according to the devil's version of the history, and formed a heaven of what he stole from the abyss. So the devil fell, but he formed a heaven with what he stole from the abyss. This is shown in the gospel, says Blake. That is, he said, Blake believes the gospels. He says they tell the truth. You just have to interpret them right. This is shown in the gospel, where he prays to the Father, that is, the Son of God, Jesus, prays to the Father to send the comforter or desire that reason may have ideas to build on. The Jehovah of the Bible being no other than he who dwells in flaming fire. Know that after Christ's death, he became Jehovah. So the true God, the true Messiah, is the figure that Milton calls Satan. That's Blake's reading of Paradise Lost. And then he says, but in Milton, the father, that is the false father, the father in heaven, is destiny. The son, a ratio of the five senses, that is reason or rationality, an ordered uh, relationship among the five senses, and the Holy Ghost vacuum, nothingness. And then an important note. This should tell you to read notes. Notes, note. The reason Milton wrote in fetters when he wrote of angels and God, and at liberty when of devils and hell, is because he was a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing it. So Blake here gives a really powerful one-line interpretation of Paradise Lost as follows, that Milton was writing a poem where, as he puts it at the end of the invocation to book one, the invocation, there are four or five, I think there are five, most people will tell you there are four, Books of Paradise Lost, which begin as epics do with an invocation to the muse. The first words of the Iliad, do you know? Okay, what's your name, by the way? Rebecca. Rebecca. First words of the Iliad, um, literally translated from the Greek, are anger, sing, muse. First three words. Mene, Aieda, Thea. Anger, sing, muse. So you call upon the muse to sing the song that as you call upon her to sing it, you tell her the song you want her to sing. And telling her the song that you want her to sing, you go into more and more detail. The way little kids sometimes tell, the par tell their parents the stories they want them to tell. And, if, and they'll sometimes tell the whole story in asking to be told that story. You know, tell the story about the bunny that runs away and tells its mother that it's going to run away and says that it will become a fish and will swim away. And the mother says, oh, well, if you do, then I will become a fisher and I will scoop you up. You know, The Runaway Bunny, um, which is a great book, um, seriously great book, and um, much analyzed by psychoanalysts, actually. 
which is unfortunate. Um, <laughs> but um, the point is that if you know a story, you can, ask, you can ask an authority to tell you the story, but the asking is its own answer. And that's the idea of invoking the muse, is you ask the muse to tell you the story, which when you ask her to tell the story, your asking becomes the story itself as told to your audience. So in Paradise Lost, Milton asks the aid of the muse to tell of man's first disobedience, that first line of Paradise Lost, of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden till one greater man, what is it, um, redeem, restore us, and, and um, no, redeem us and restore the heavenly sea, sing, heavenly muse, that on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai didst inspire that shepherd who first taught the chosen seed in the beginning how heaven and earth rose out of chaos. So he calls upon the muse to tell him the story of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree, etc. The same muse who inspired the shepherd who told how, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth, which is the first line of what? Genesis. Genesis. Yes, or of Bereshit, as we call it. Um, the first line of Genesis. So Milton is saying... Um, same muse who went to Moses, he's the person who wrote Genesis, should come to me. So that muse would be God, and not a god or goddess, but God himself. Milton calls upon that muse and says that his task, or at least Milton's narrator, and here we have to make that distinction, calls upon that muse to aid him in the task of, as he puts it, justifying the ways of God to man. So that idea that the task of Paradise Lost is to justify the ways of God to man, um, that's what Milton thinks he's going to do. Now notice what that means is he's saying God's ways, they kind of seem like, I don't know, <coughs> cruel, capricious, maybe even evil. And they need, God needs a defense. I'm going to speak for God and try to explain why everything that you might think seems evil in God's behavior can actually be justified. The very idea of justifying the ways of God um, can seem like a sacrilegious idea. If you have to justify the ways of God, what you're basically saying is um, they need work. God needs better press. The sound bites of what God says. Um, the Lord thy God is a jealous God, hating him that hate him, even unto the third and fourth generation. That's not a good sound bite. The opposition using that sound bite can do pretty good attack ads on God. Third or fourth generation, because someone did something bad, their great and great great grandchildren are going to be punished? Really? Sounds like certain presidential candidates. <laughs> so what that means then is maybe you need someone who can explain God. He needs a defense attorney. That's what justifying the ways of God would mean. And Milton says, okay, but they are justifiable. 
in another poem, one we're not doing, Samson Agonises, Milton's Tragedy, um, the chorus there sings, just are the ways of God and justifiable to man. So it's an idea that's on his mind. The ways of God are just, but they have to be justified according to the ideas of poetic justice. They have to be justified. Now the question is, can they be? And what Blake thinks is that Milton didn't know that because he was being honest, because for him telling the truth and not twisting and not manipulating the evidence, but telling the truth justly led him to understand that the ways of God could not be justified in Paradise Lost. He tried and failed. Like David Brock, who very famously um, took down our um, co-community member, Anita Hill, in his book on the um, Clarence Thomas, Anita Hill, imbroglio, and then apologized because he lied and said that it was terrible what he'd done and that he was completely wrong in um, being part of the attack machine on Anita Hill. And David Brock, who has now um, gone over to the other side. Um, Milton <clears throat> tried to attack those who rebelled against God and in Blake's reading, failed. And he failed because he was too honest to simply score points. Because he put the truth above the propaganda on behalf of God. That in trying to defend God, he found that God was indefensible. That's Blake's reading of Milton. That God and Milton is doing everything he can to make the hard parts of the Bible go away, to explain them away, to show why God is actually a good guy, but everything he can, according to Blake, isn't enough. But when he writes about Satan, that's easy. He doesn't have to do anything. He can let Satan speak for himself because Satan's amazing. That's why he's not in fetters writing about Satan. That's Blake's reading. So now I want you, and I also want to point out that one of the quotations that I brought on Monday, you probably don't have that sheet, but I'll read it to you again, is a little anecdote about the philosopher Wittgenstein, the 20th century uh, philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, who is, um, the joke about him is that he's two of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century. Um, because early in his career, he came up with an amazing philosophical system um, at the age of 23. Um, which is very, very powerful and set um, the direction for much of 20th century analytic philosophy. Um, and then he spent the rest of his life, like Milton, thinking that he was wrong. And the rest of his life was him arguing against his early self. Ultimately, in a book called Philosophical Investigations, um, finished... Um, not too long before his death and, not, and published after his death, um, which goes against everything he said in the first part of his career. Um, people were obsessed with him. He was a very charismatic and strange man. Um, there's actually a Derek Jarman movie about him um, and about how charismatic and strange he was. There are novels about him. 
um, at least two, one of which is actually quite great, a novel called Correction um, by the Austrian writer Thomas Bernhardt, um, also a, a novel called The World as I Found It um, by an American writer named Bruce Duffy. Um, and many anecdotes about him after he died, including one from M.O.C. Drury, um, who was studying for the priesthood when he knew Wittgenstein. And Wittgenstein was dubious, but really liked Drury. And um, they, one day they were walking down the street, and they saw that there was a church service in progress, and there was music playing, and they went in. Wittgenstein loved music. Um, his brother was... Um, a major 20th century pianist um, who lost his arm in World War I, lost his right arm. And um, if you know that there are a lot of musical compositions, um, most famously by Ravel for, um, let, for the left hand on the piano, um, they were written for Wittgenstein's brother, Paul Wittgenstein. So we sat at the back of the nave listening to the service. When it came to the sermon, the preacher chose as his text... So this is from the book of John. The preacher chose as his text, It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. After a few minutes, Wittgenstein leant over and whispered to me, I am not listening to a word he is saying. Something familiar to you? I am not listening to a word he is saying. See, only one of you laughed, so it's a self-proving um, doctrine. I'm not listening to a word he is saying, but think about the text. That is wonderful. That is really wonderful. So the text, what he finds so wonderful is it is expedient for you. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples um, and predicting his own crucifixion. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. So notice how that's a very quick observation of tragedy. That when I go, the comforter will come to comfort you for the fact that I'm gone. And that will be better than having me, or more expedient to use that word. That to be comforted is somehow deeper than to have the thing whose loss you will be comforted for. That loss plus comfort, that's friendship. Someone comforting you for your loss, that's friendship. And that is somehow deeper than not having the loss at all. Tennyson very famously said, it is better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. This is going being a little bit more radical. It is better to have loved and lost than to have loved and not lost. Now, that's not actually true. That's not what Blake would think. But there is a sense there that one thing that tragedy does, that one thing that loss does, is it makes this experience of another setting you before them and comforting you. It makes that experience possible. So that's what Blake is referring to when he talks about the comforter in the pas passages that we've just read. Um, that is, uh, this is shown in the Gospel where he prays to the Father, that is, Jesus or the Messiah prays to the Father, to send the comforter or desire that reason may have ideas to build on. 
So those ideas are ideas of loss. Desire is desire for what you do not have. Desire may be in its most intense mode, not erotic desire, but mourning. That is desire for the dead, desire to have the person who is gone forever back. Cordelia, stay a little. So Blake is saying that's what Paradise Lost is about. That sublimity, as Blake is defining sublimity, goes all the way from Satan's most amazing speeches of defiance. Hail horrors! Hail infernal world! And thou profoundest hell, receive thy new possessor, one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. The mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. What matters is the mind. What matter where, if I be still the same and what I should be? All but less than he thunder hath made greater. Here, at least, we shall be free. The Almighty hath not builded here for his envy, will not drive us hence. And in my thought, to reign is worth ambition, though in hell. So placing the mind, the energy of the mind, the sense of your own will, your own desire, ultimately your own freedom, above what one of the other fallen angels calls splendid vassalage. That is, you get beauty, you get wealth, you get all your pleasures catered to in heaven, but what you don't have is freedom. And in hell you get nothing except for freedom. And the rebel angels prefer that freedom. And that's sublime. Heaven offers beauty. Hell offers sublimity. And part of that sublimity is that hell offers friendship. The rebel angels are friends with each other. There's very little sense of friendship. Not none, but almost none, among the loyal angels. But the rebel angels put freedom and friendship above beauty and self-possessed isolation or self-isolating self-possession. So I think we have a minute or two. I want to, um, yeah, we do. Yay. I know you're happy. Um, look, I want us to look at Shelley. So there are two passages on the lower part of the sheet. Um, there, are, there are actually three passages from Shelley that I have brought in. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about them on um, Thursday, tomorrow, and tomorrow. Um, and tomorrow. Um, the passages, the first one is from his preface, Shelley's preface to his poem, Prometheus Unbound. No, I'm sorry, I get that. That's the second one. The first one is from um, Shelley's great, great poetic essay called The Defense of Poetry. And he does a little history of poetry from the beginning of um, Western time to the 19th century. Um, and I just wanted to show you what he says about King Lear. Um, he talks about how interesting it is that in modern days people don't wear masks in the drama, as they did in Greek drama, as you know, mask of tragedy, mask of comedy, and how that makes it possible to combine those two. A way of putting this is to say, if you did King Lear and masks, you couldn't have the relation between Lear and the fool, because the fool would either have a comic mask 
or a tragic mask, and it wouldn't go with half of what he said. And Lear would either have a comic or a tragic mask, no doubt a tragic mask, and then the fool couldn't affect him the way he does. So Shelley goes on, the modern practice, this is about five lines down, of blending comedy with tragedy, though liable to great abuse in point of practice, is undoubtedly an extension of the dramatic circle. That is, it's a good thing. Drama has gone further than before. But the comedy should be, as in King Lear, universal, ideal, and sublime. So there's that word again, sublime. The comedy with the fool is sublime. Universal, ideal, and sublime. It is perhaps the intervention of this principle which determines the balance in favor of King Lear against the Oedipus Tyrannus, that is Oedipus Rex, or the Agamemnon, or if you will, with the trilogies which, with which they are connected. Unless the intense power of the choral poetry, especially that of the latter, should be considered as restoring the equilibrium. So here Shelley is saying that King Lear is as great or perhaps greater than any tragedy the world has ever known, although there is stuff in Agamemnon, the greatest of the Greek tragedians, that might, um, that might balance off against King Lear. King Lear, if it can sustain this comparison, may be judged to be the most perfect specimen of the dramatic art existing in the world in spite of the narrow conditions to which the poet was subjected by the ignorance of the philosophy of drama which has prevailed in modern Europe. So Tate comes along because people don't get how great Lear is. So that's Shelley on Lear. Just go, give me one more minute, to the preface Prometheus Unbound, and then we'll pick up with the defense of poetry. Here he's describing Prometheus and comparing him to Satan, and he says, the only imaginary being resembling in any degree Prometheus is Satan. And Prometheus is, in my judgment, a more poetical character even than Satan, because in addition to courage and majesty, so here's what Satan has, courage and majesty and firm and patient opposition to omnipotent force, Prometheus and Satan share those things. He, Prometheus, is also exempt from the taints of ambition, envy, revenge, and a desire for personal aggrandizement, which in the hero, capital H, hero of Paradise Lost, interfere with the interests. So... Shelley, Satan is the hero of Paradise Lost. The character of Satan makes us weigh his faults with his wrongs and excuse the former, the things he does wrong, because the latter, the wrongs done to him, exceed all measure. In the minds of those who consider that magnificent fiction with a religious feeling, that is, those who hate Satan for religious reasons, it engenders something worse. So if you are against Satan in Paradise Lost, then you are being corrupted by religion. That's Shelley on Satan and Paradise Lost. Okay, we will pick up, bring this sheet in again tomorrow. Or, you know, I could do another handout, but better if you bring it in. Okay, see you guys tomorrow.